All right, let's pray. Our Father God, it is with great grace and mercy on your part that we approach you. Approach you together as an assembly in your name, which is an amazing privilege and an amazing example of how you have worked across decades and across families and cultures and even continents to bring a people together here in this place to praise your name. And so let your name be hallowed here and made holy. Let uh, an understanding of the goodness and grace that you relate to us in be made known today. Let your Holy Spirit move in the hearts of men and women that they might come to know you or know you deeper. What an awesome privilege right now, Lord. We give thanks in all things that you have wrought for us and certainly for your glory. So help us now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Last week we talked about the beginnings of prayer and how to approach God, the posture in which you pray, and that mostly prayer is private, although there is occasion, as we just witnessed, for corporate prayer. Uh, your, your main or most consistent form of communication with God is to be done in private. It's not to be done for the benefit of seeing. You will uh, get your reward, and so we had to examine what our desires are. Are they for being seen in our holiness, or are they simply for knowing God? And if you are after or desiring knowing God, guess what? You will. That is a promise from Him, and we just have to come to an understanding that that is the greatest desire and reward that we could have, and that Jesus alone makes that possible. So we pray to the Father in His name. Today we're talking about uh, praying in providence, not that we have providence, or not that we can only pray in Providence, Rhode Island, but we pray in light of the Lord's providence. And you would say, well, that's kind of an oxymoron if you're paying careful attention, uh, because if the Lord exercises providence and sovereignty and omniscience and omnipresence over all things at all times, then why pray? Because in verse 8, Jesus acknowledges that even though God knows and works providentially at all times through all things, it's still assumed and commanded that we would ask. We would ask mainly to position ourselves or to posture ourselves in the right heart to pray. That we would recognize who He is. That we would call on Him as Father who is sovereign, who, who does work providentially. Because, as we saw last week, 
if you are not desiring God's glory through prayer, then we are not praying according to His will. Because throughout the Scriptures, the survey that you can take of your whole Bible is that the Lord is working for the sake of His name and that His people are a part of bringing Him glory. So we're seeking His glory. And you will be a benefactor of that if your desire is for Him and to know Him and to worship Him. So first we look at some uh, prayer do-nots. Right? We already saw in verses 5 and 6 that we are not going to be like hypocrites. And now we're going to see that we're not going to be like those who offer up empty phrases. And notice <coughs> the two people that he groups together. So <coughs> we can infer that he is talking about Pharisees and Sadducees and religious elite of the day in verses 5 and 6. Look at verses 5 and 7. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do. So what two groups has he just put together in their inappropriate posture of prayer? Pharisees and Gentiles. <clears throat> he said earlier in the Sermon on the Mount that unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, then you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. He's not saying that they are the most holy people there is. He is just saying you have to go beyond the external which they do exemplify to some degree, to be holy. They are not holy. And of course we know that Gentiles aren't holy. They would have no devotion to the Lord and would worship pagan gods. But in the manner of the way that prayer is approached or thought of, both in a uh, monotheistic society and both in a uh, pagan polytheistic society, those are a lot of words and syllables, uh, you're going to have inappropriate postures of prayer. And we already saw what the Pharisees are doing, and this is what the Gentiles are doing, for they think that they'll be heard for their many words. So empty phrases, many words, quite literally you could translate this into many useless and pointless words. That's a clearer way to understand empty phrases. You, you might be thinking, well, what's the formula of the sentence that would make it an empty phrase? Well, think about many useless and pointless words, and we'll clarify what that would be in a minute. But first, let's look at kind of how they do this. If you've read your Bible, spend any time at all in the Old Testament, you know one of the most uh, profound and known stories there is when Elijah does kind of battle with the, uh, with the pagans and their worship of Baal, <coughs> okay? And they're going to they're gonna try and prove whose God is greater, and obviously Baal is not going to answer them because he doesn't exist. And then, of course, Yahweh rains down fire from heaven that consumes that drenched altar of wood and water. But, but look what they do in 1 Kings 18, 26. They took the bowl that was given 
them, and they prepared it, and called upon the name of Baal from morning until noon, saying, O Baal, answer us. But there was no voice, and no one answered, and they limped around the altar that they had made. So from morning until noon, which was sometime between 6 and 9 o'clock until noon, they are saying, O Baal, answer us. Now, that's an empty phrase. Why? Because it has no meaning. It has no response that could be given to them, which is exactly what they are looking for. They want to be heard, which means they want a response, and of course they're not going to get it because they're not speaking to the right deity. In fact, they're not speaking to an actual deity at all, just one that they've created by their hands and imagination. So that's an empty phrase. An empty phrase is directing worship, praise, thanks, confession uh, to a, a God that doesn't exist. Let's get a New Testament example. Acts 19.34, it may pop up on there in a minute, but when they recognized that he was a Jew, this is somebody who's representing, okay, Acts 19, uh, Paul is about to cause a riot in Ephesus because he's telling the people who make these uh, uh, statues and phylacteries for the god Artemis, uh, they're kind of going out of business because Paul's proclaiming that that's a false god, and so the things that you're making are, are useless. Okay, and so a representative goes into this assembly to try and stop or speak uh, on behalf of the Jews for what's happening there. But when they recognized that he was a Jew, for about two hours they all cried out with one voice, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. For two hours they cry out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Like that's going to change something. Empty phrases, useless words, pointless meaning. They'll gain nothing except maybe hopefully to silence what their opposition is saying. Now, what Jesus is not saying when he's talking about heaping up empty phrases and trying to be heard for many words well, what, what he is saying is repeating something with mindless repetition is not the same as declaring the truth that underlines something or the perfection of someone. In Psalm 136, you'll get a line about God, and then the next line will be his steadfast love endures forever. And it will repeat his steadfast love endures forever every other line throughout the whole psalm. Is that mindless repetition or endless Phraseology, no. We are underlining the stated truth above each time we say his steadfast love endures forever. That which is stated in Psalm 36 is proving that, and then we are reminding ourselves of that when we say his steadfast love endures forever. It's proof of that point. Or in Isaiah 6.3, we know that in Heaven and in the, uh, the great throne that Isaiah sees, and this is certainly mirrored in Revelation through John's revelation of, of the great holy throne of God. And one called to another and said, this is the angels there before the throne, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts, the whole earth is full of his glory. 
We are communicating the perfection of God's holiness by making sure that you understand the degree to which he is holy. The only way in human terminology that we can say that is to, is to put that modifier at the beginning, perfectly holy, or we can just simply state it in biblical terms three times. Holy, holy, holy. That's not mindless repetition. That is declaring perfection. And we understand the very truths of those things. We didn't make them up. They've been told to us. They've been communicated to us by the Lord himself. And they are on display in the world that you witness. And we know that the Lord responds. We have a whole book of history that would declare that he has responded to the cries and words of his people. But it says in the second half of verse 7 that they're using many words. Many words in these empty phrases that they're speaking. Now, the Bible warns us about talking a lot. The more you talk, the more you open yourself up to error. It probably took me a good 25 years to learn that. And then I learned that if I just shut my mouth, people might think I'm wise. And that's better, right, than opening it up and letting people know otherwise. So... It's, it's just kind of logical common sense. The more you do speak, the more you up, open yourself up to the imperfection that will surely come out at some point. That's why James says in James chapter 3, not many of you should become teachers. Right? James is talking a lot about the tongue and how much damage the tongue can do. So beware of teaching because you're going to be required to speak a lot, <clears throat> which creates a higher probability of saying something ignorant or foolish. Trust me, I know. Ecclesiastes 5, 1 through 2. King Solomon, right? The wisest man who ever lived. Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. To draw near to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools, for they do not know that they are doing evil. Be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God, for God is in heaven and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. Now, there's a principle here that we should continue to follow from Solomon. And it all comes from how we understand who God is. I remember when I first started praying, I would pray for a long time, not because I was so holy, but because I thought that I needed to tell God everything that I needed. I needed to rehearse everything that I thought needed to be said. I thought I had to go over every detail or he wouldn't hear about it, and therefore nothing would be done about it. So we need to understand who he is. And Solomon kind of gets to that, right? 
He says, you're on earth, God's in heaven, therefore let your words be few. So the implication there is he's understanding he is reigning over everything. He doesn't need you to inform him. So don't open yourself up. And, and uh, the rest of that chapter goes into like, hey, don't make a vow, which we've talked about here before, God, uh, rashly, if you're not meaning to fulfill it. Like, be careful how you use words before him. We're, we're not going in half-heartedly or haphazardly. We're going in understanding who he is and understanding who we are. Now, is he going to smite you from heaven if you say something wrong? No. He's gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. But I would expect that he would teach you how to speak. And also, when we go into prayer with just, just this word salad, we're not focused on him. We're focused on what we need to say to him. Which you're looking at me like, well, yeah, isn't that the purpose of prayer? We speak to him. But listen, the, the posture of prayer, the dependence, the hopeful trust that we have when we pray is the prayer of faith, which we're told to pray with. We're told to pray in faith, and praying in faith is understanding who he is, so that when we pray, we don't act out of faith or outside of faith. We're acting in faith. We're praying things that acknowledge that he is more than capable of taking care of it, or that he is more than aware of it, or that he will work all things together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. So you may be anxious when you pray, and you should pray when you're anxious. We're told that in 1 Peter. But through prayer, you should become like David, who brings these burdens to the Lord, which would cause great anxiety. But by the time David is done praying, he is settled because he is recognizing or being reminded again of who God is over these things. Psalm 22 is a great example, right? That great messianic psalm that Jesus utters on the cross, he is mirroring the fact that, look, this is happening. You have, I am forsaken under your watch, under your care. And by the end of that psalm, God gets the glory because he will accomplish good. So, we, we need to pray in that kind of faith. If you leave your interaction with the Father through prayer, not reminded who he is, then you're not praying in faith. Praying in faith is not like, I believe that if I ask for this thing, or the, that I'm going to get it. Praying in faith is believing who you're praying to. Let's get that right. Believing that he is good, that he will always work for good, that he will always work for his glory, and that that will be somewhat synonymous but second to your good. And you don't know what the best solution may be. But he does. 
and he's already worked it out. That's a prayer of faith. Next, Jesus says in verse 8, not to be like them, and he says, for your father. Your father. So easy to glance over this, isn't it? So easy to take for granted that God is our father, which would imply that we are his children if we've been born again. I'm a pastor. I look over this all the time. My heart forgets that I belong to him. And that carries certain implications with it. That carries certain privileges with it. That carries a, and I hate using the word pride, but I'll use it. That carries a certain pride with it that keeps you mindful that you belong to the king and his kingdom instead of this world or the old man or the old flesh which he has put to death and given you a new heart and a new hope of a new flesh. And you're living it out now. But you have to remember how intimately acquainted he has made himself to you so that, like Romans 8 says, we can cry out because of Jesus, Abba, Father, an intimate dad. You therefore have the opportunity to approach him in that way. Approach him as someone who looks at you as a son or a daughter in, so, in an infinitely more intimate and caring and loving way than you do your children. And to understand in faith who he is is to uh, be put at ease when you approach your father. You are having a meaningful and personal interaction with your Father who is in heaven. This is why any doctrine that would proclaim that you only can speak to Him through some sort of intermediary like a saint or Mary would be utterly inappropriate and disastrous to one's faith. It would disguise the glory of the gospel which allows us access into the holy presence of God. And if you go there, right? If you go into the holy presence of God, there is life and glory and love and hope and help and righteousness. But if you're told you can't go directly there, then you're settling for some sort of second best, which is nothing at all. So the fact that he uses this possessive pronoun of your is supremely important to our posture of prayer. And then a, rem a reminder that we're not praying to a genie who is unaware of us, but to an actual dad. Listen, 
I will fail and you will fail as a father if my children can't come to me and know that I will work or listen for their good. And at times, I do fail them in that. But the awesome thing about knowing God as Father is that he overcomes the failures of our earthly fathers, and we can 100% of the time know that when we go to him, he's there, and he will respond for good, even if that's our correction, our discipline. So who is he? This is what I want to press into with our time left here. Who, who is your father? Well, I hope that you can say the Lord who's in heaven. But if you can't, we're going to tell you about him. And if he is, we're going to tell you about him still. So who is he? Uh, Jesus says that your father knows what you need before you ask him. Your father knows what you need before you ask. So Jesus reminds us that he is omniscient. He's going to say this very thing again when we get to uh, verse 32 in chapter 6. And he reminds us there again in verse 32, don't be like the Gentiles who seek after uh, temporary things that are obvious needs that your good father knows you need. And if he's a good father, he's going to give you good things. Surely he's going to make sure you have what you need. So he reminds us there again in verse 32, look, he is before and over all of this. What Solomon said, he is in heaven and you are on earth. He gets it. He is before your needs and he is in every decision. Proverbs 16, the lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. Man, if we treat God as reactionary or incapable of, of dealing with our decisions or our sins or the, or the ways of the world and how they want to go, we become kind of hopeless in prayer. We're not praying with a lot of confidence or hope and faith that God is actually able or has done anything about it. The hope that a Christian has in praying to our Father who is in heaven is knowing that even though we don't know how to navigate the situation or how to make the certain decision or what to say to that person or whatever the case may be, we know that he knows. So we ask, like Jesus says, in light of the fact that he knows. And if you're praying in that kind of faith, then you're praying with an understanding that he will make known. Isn't that what we're after? We, I read to you Psalm 139 last week, and what does that psalm communicate? That he knows your words before they come out of your mouth. He's formed your days and numbered them in his book before they ever existed. That's who he is. He is before all things, over all things. He's working through all things, and all things are working to him. That's what Colossians 1 tells us. Go meditate on Colossians chapter 1. It tells us who Jesus is, and it tells us what everything else is in light of Jesus. 
that everything else exists from him and through him and to him, whether it be thrones or dominions or kings or kingdoms. It's all going to work for him. And of course, right, we've got to hit the coffee mug verse of Romans 8, 28. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. Notice the qualifier. If you love God, then you're loving the things that God loves. So the way that he works for his glory and good will be for your good. Because that's what you desire. And that's what is good. He is good. And by the way, when you pray to God, you don't have to like wait for him to go back to uh, like a board or like bring this into committee or something. Like he's, he's the end. Okay? He, he is working all this according to the counsel of his own will. Ephesians 1.11, In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. He has a purpose, and it was worked out according to the counsel of his own will. What he's already decided needs to take place. Listen. I say this over and over again, but I'm going to keep saying it over and over again. If God isn't who he is according to the Bible, not according to some theological system, but according to the Bible, then Genesis 3.15 can't be fulfilled. He can't send the snake crusher, you know, 5,000 years later or so and fulfill what he said 5,000 years prior because there's too many variables at work. And if he is not existing in power and sovereignty over all the variables, then we can't get to the cross. But we don't have to worry about that because he does. Because that's who he is. That is who the Bible communicates to us is God. Acts 17, 26, And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling places. How did he decide that? Well, what we just read in Ephesians 1, by the counsel of his own will, according to his own purpose. What's his purpose? The purpose is to bring glory to his name, which he already had before he created, but to display his glory to the universe by displaying who he is in righteousness and wrath and in mercy and grace and to what, what Peter reiterates, to create a holy nation, a royal priesthood through his grace. To display that to what he makes. So he determines how this world works and moves and ends. What do we read at the end of Revelation? He is the Alpha and the Omega. He knows the beginning from the end because he writes it. He writes it. He's the author. 
He determines all things. How all things... And, and, and by the way, that causes some logical problems in your mind. Because you're trying to work out <clears throat> why evil takes place when God is sovereignly ruling over all things. And you've got to realize, we're on earth, he's in heaven. We're created, he's eternally existed before there was anything that we've ever known. And so he has a purpose and a will and a way, and we have some sort of decision-making responsibility that comes into play. How do you reconcile those two things? I do not know. I just know that they're there. And I just know that he reigns over all that. So the comfort that you and I have is that the, the terribleness of this world is moving towards its desired end from the one who created it to end in its desired way. In, in, in short, he is moving all things to their completion for good. And Paul understands that to mean that any suffering he encounters here in this point in time is not worth comparing to the glory that's coming. In other words, it's all going to be answered. All you have to do is go back to probably the first book that was written in the Bible, not about the first things that ever happened in the world, but the first thing that was probably ever written, Job. And Job suffers immensely, more than you and I are going to suffer. And, and how do, what does God explain to him about that? Nothing. He just reveals himself. Out of the whirlwind, right? And so what's Job? Job is undone completely. Job begins to repent of any sort of uh, complaining or whining or anything that, that he may have sinned in while he was suffering. What does that tell you and I? That we're looking, especially in, in these generations, we're looking back at the Holocaust, and, and we're looking at 9-11, and we're looking at all the world wars and the wickedness that has taken place in the world, and we're saying, how? How is that for good? How am I going to be able to say, oh, wow, I mean, that was, that was nothing compared to this. Well, if you're a faithful believer, you're, you're letting go of any ability that you want to have to wrap your mind around the glory that is going to be revealed at the great day of the Lord. Like, you're, you're, you're letting go of the fact that you can comprehend it or imagine what that will be like. You're, you're letting that be a transcendent thought. In other words, that it's far above what you comprehend of good and evil. That what he's going to show you or what he's going to do to you or what he's gonna, where he's going to bring you is going to completely just change the way that you think of all the evil that has taken place. And you have to go there. So, uh, we could belabor that point for months, okay? But we're not going to do that. We're, we're going we're gonna to apply 
everything that we've just heard. So, according to the fact that this is who God is, and this is who we're praying to, and this is who we need to acknowledge when we pray in faith, 1 John 5, 14 through 15. First John 5, 14 through 15. And this is the confidence that we have toward him. That if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request that we have asked of him. So everything I just explained to you about God and what Jesus said and how we approach him and not approach him, is to get you to that point. That your prayers of faith would also be prayers in confidence. So that when you confess even sin to the Lord, you know that He has forgiven you. So you confess in, that, in light of that. You don't confess so that He can just destroy you and get it over with. You confess because he's promised to forgive you. He promised that he has forgiven you. Or, again, whatever the case may be, either you're asking for something or asking for something for someone or you're thanking him or whatever the case may be, if you know God, if you understand him and if your knowledge of him is growing, which is what Paul's praying for, for us in Ephesians 1, which is what Jesus is praying for, for us in John 17, if that's happening, then you know better how to pray. And the more you know about who you're praying to and what his will is, then you are more confident that you have what you ask for. That's leading up to him then showing us then how you pray. If we, if we want to make sure to pray according to his will, Jesus is giving us kind of a rubric in the coming verses. So I don't want to overwhelm you or burden you, but I want you to understand that it is so supremely important that we grow in the knowledge of God here so that we know better how to pray. And the better we know how to pray according to his will, because we know who he is and we're learning about who he is, then the greater glory he gets when he answers those things, because you know then directly where they came from. And you have this word more fully confirmed by the fact that you are responding to what you see here in prayer. And then he responds, and you're like, oh, shoot, that's right. Oh, this works. Oh, he's really active doing that. And your faith is built up, strengthened. That as you move through this dark world and do have to deal with those wicked things and evil things and crazy things and unexpected things, you have confidence in the one that you pray to so that you become different than the rest of the world. And the different that we're trying to see or that he is putting on display for the world 
is that you live according to a different kingdom under a different king. And that you are becoming Christ-like who? Jesus models the very thing I'm talking about perfectly. Jesus prays according to the will of God at all times. And the very, one of the very last prayers you hear from him in the Garden of Gethsemane is that very thing. Hey, let this cup pass from me. It's very unpleasant, but your will is good and better than the unpleasantries that I'm facing. Therefore, your will be done. And what does God do through Jesus? Nothing short of reconcile sinners to himself for all eternity? So I'll leave you with this, just, just to meditate on this. Take a, take a glance at any of the men or women in the scriptures that God used mightily or did great things through. How did they pray? What did they know about God? And is that similar to your faith in Him? We're not talking about being perfect people. We're not talking about having the greatest faith in the world. We're talking about do we know who He is and respond to Him in light of that? That's all we're seeking to do. And if you do that, you can be sure that whatever you're asking, you have. Because sovereignly and providentially, God has already worked out all things for his glory and your good. So trust that he's doing that when you pray. So practice that right now. Speak to him. Respond to him. And then we'll stand and sing.